Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 23. Luke 23, our passage uh, for study this morning. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of something called the complexity bias. It refers to the tendency of people to favor more complex solutions to simpler ones when they're faced with a difficult task or situation. In essence, it suggests that people look to higher levels of complexity, believing that they are more likely to be effective than simpler ones. And I'm not talking simply about when you try to put together a piece of Ikea furniture and make it way more complicated than it ought to be. This happens in all of life. Doctors do this when they prescribe medications and treatments that go beyond sort of the simple alternatives that might be more effective for their patient. Researchers do this when they rely on complex statistical models and theories rather than simpler explanations, sometimes just wanting to demonstrate their level of skill or training or intellectual capabilities. Engineers do this all the time when they create complicated procedures and processes and features and interfaces that are sometimes challenging for the end user. They over-engineer things all the time. And of course, in everyday life, people are prone to this. They fill their life with all kinds of complex routines and procedures and habits and pursuits and uh, routines, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, um, all, all sorts of uh, new skills that they want to acquire. All of these things, they're trying to overcome what they believe are the complex difficulties of their life, in some ways, believing that these complexities are going to make their life simpler. And of course, if someone were to come along in the midst of all that, speaking to any of these people and suggest to them that the answer and the solution to all of their problems is really quite simple, they're unlikely to believe you. Sociologists say that the reason for all of this is because we tend to believe that our problems are simply more complex than everyone else's problems, that they're deeper, that they're more profound than anyone else would understand. And so, since our problems are so complex, the solutions must be complex. As a matter of fact, in order to validate the complexity of what we think are our problems in life, we seek out complex solutions. And if we were to admit that the answer to our issues were simple, it might raise disturbing questions, such as, if it is so simple, why have we missed it all along? Well, this morning, I I want us to take a moment to look at a guy who had big problems, significant problems, more problems, maybe bigger problems than you and I will ever face. And yet he came to a point of sudden realization when for him, everything simplified really quickly. And of course, it is Easter Sunday and the time when we traditionally look at the the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And so we turn our attention this morning to the account of Christ's crucifixion on, on that day, that Friday morning, April 1st, AD 33, so long ago, when Jesus was crucified along with two other men, two robbers, two thieves, we're told, who were uh, with him on the hill that day. But in that, we see the story of a man 
who has serious issues, obviously suffering and facing death, but was amazingly transformed by some simple, basic realities that he came to see. Now to capture all this, I want to kind of read the whole context for us so that we have it in our minds as we look this morning. And we'll start in Luke 23, beginning in verse 32. Luke says, two, other, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There also was an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke lays out the scene for us here with these two criminals who are crucified together with Christ and the entire sort of atmosphere that was going on that day, all of these people who were hurling their insults, it all sort of started rather early in the morning with a trial at sunup but then quickly moved to the, uh, the sort of uh, indictment and conviction phase and then ultimately the condemnation and the crucifixion so that by 9 o'clock Jesus was already being placed upon the cross and crucified. And along the way, he had experienced enormous abuse, not just physically but also sort of socially and And psychologically, while he was being led along the way, and when he got to the final hill, we read back in verse 35 that the Jewish rulers, the ones who had secretly plotted to catch him and to accuse him falsely, they who were sort of basking in their their triumph, gloating over their ability to to, uh, ensnare him the way that they did, and they began to mock him, saying, he saved others... Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. So now they're hurling their sarcastic taunts at him because in that moment, I'm sure in their minds, it appeared as if everything he had ever said, everything he had ever believed, everything he'd ever preached was all a lie. He promised all of these things to all of these people. He promised salvation and deliverance and all that stuff. And here he is now hanging on a cross about to breathe his last breath. And they had concluded in their minds, surely no one who has the power to save others would ever suffer something like this. 
Even the soldiers got involved. His, his actual abusers, the, one who had, the ones who had whipped him and spat on him already, the ones who had mocked and ridiculed him through the morning, the ones who had strapped him to a cross and had him drag it through the streets, the one who had driven the nails into his hands and his feet. Now here they are watching him bleed out and, and, and suffocate as, as he's hanging there on the cross and the sort of the fluid is beginning to build around his heart and in his lungs and, and they're watching him in his struggled breathing. They're there, they're mocking him in verse 36, coming up and offering him sour wine as the heat of the day begins to take bite. And they're saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Just, you can almost hear the ridicule and the laughter in their voice. And even these criminals got in on the act. Even as they're, they, they themselves are hanging on the cross, agonizing over what's going on in their own bodies and all the suffering that they're enduring physically, all of the sort of... Uh, the strains that are in their ligaments and joints, and as I said, around all of their organs are beginning to feel the pressure on their chest. They even sort of muster up the energy to hurl their abuse and blasphemy at Jesus. Luke doesn't highlight it so much, but Matthew tells us that the robbers, plural, who were crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Mark 15, 32, those who were crucified with him were insulting him. So as the, as the morning unfolds and as the crucifixion begins to take place, even these criminals on either side of him were wagging their tongues at Jesus along the way. And from either side, he's getting abuse from these guys. But then, as the sun begins to rise and as the heat of the day arrives and beats down on them, as the crowds are shuffling their way along the street into Jerusalem and uh, people are gathering around to watch the spectacle, as one hour passes to another, something happens. Suddenly, one of the thieves a man who had been devoted to violent robbery, wicked criminal, one who had been himself engaged in all the taunting and all the ridicule and all the uh, sort of mockery of Christ. He goes silent. He goes silent and he sits and he stares and he thinks. And while his body is in all this horrible trauma and agony and sort of unparalleled suffering like anything he's ever known, while I'm sure some sort of shock is even sort of setting in in his body, he can hardly protect himself from pain in any way. In all of that that he's going through physically, at that moment of the worst possible agony, he has a moment of clarity. Suddenly, things become crystal clear. For the first time ever in his life, things become crystal clear. He has a perception, not only of reality, but he has a perception of his life, of who he is, of everything that he's done. He has a perception of all that stuff, and he has a perception of the man who's standing next to him. He has this moment of clarity where suddenly everything 
makes sense. Something happens to him. And this man who previously we're told was a part of the mockery, a part of the ridicule, he who had been joining in with everybody else, all of a sudden he turns to his buddy on the other side of Jesus Christ with whom he had just been taunting and and jesting and he starts rebuking the guy for what he himself had just been doing. What happened? I mean, what changed? I'll tell you what happened. A miracle happened. Right there at that moment, a divine miracle, almost inexplicable from any human standpoint, no other explanation but the power of God gripped him. He was changed. He was, in the words of the Apostle Paul, made a new creature. Where all the old things, all the old attitudes, all the old perspective, all the old confusion, all the old bitterness that used to sort of dictate his life, all the old stuff, all the illicit desires and all the greed and all the hatred, all that stuff passed away and everything became new. His heart became new. His perspective on life became new. His understanding of himself became new. And his speech became new. Now, remember, this, this guy was wretched. He wouldn't have been crucified if he wasn't wretched. Matthew has already told us that he was a robber and a thief. We, uh, we saw that not only in Matthew, but also in in Mark's gospel. And you can gather from the fact that he's being crucified that these weren't just petty robberies. These were probably violent acts that involved assault and possibly even murder. As a matter of fact, earlier in Luke, back in verse 18, Luke tells us that there was a moment when Pilate, having examined Jesus, was willing to release Jesus out of his custody and give him his freedom. But at that point, the people demanded that he release to them instead another criminal named Barabbas, a man that Luke tells us was guilty of murderous rebellion. So he had led within the city some sort of insurrection against the governing powers and along the way with his rebellion, some sort of armed resistance that led to the death and murder of other people. And it's it's uh, perhaps likely that these two men hanging on either side of Jesus had been a part of that insurrection and maybe had participated in all the chaos and the rioting and the looting and the violence and the abuse of other people. And so this guy who had been in his own way sort of abusing others, not just that day, but I'm sure for many, uh, many weeks or months, maybe even years now... All of a sudden, he's dramatically transformed. And he goes from blaspheming Jesus, mocking him, and all those who believed in him, he goes from that to being horrified that anyone would ever say anything against Christ. His whole perception utterly transformed. That's how the story unfolds. The other criminal, by the way, on the other side, he doesn't go through any of this. I mean, he continues to hang there. He continues to hurl his abuse and his mockery. He says to Jesus, are you not the Christ? 
Save yourself and us. No sense of reverence, no sense of fear, no idea or any inclination that that this man hanging next to him might one day actually be his judge. There was no sense of justice over what he was suffering, no guilt or shame over what he had what he had done, no desire for forgiveness, no desire for reconciliation or atonement, no longing for righteousness in his heart. Just hanging there in his continued defiance and darkness and abuse and hatred of others. And then his friend on the other side, begins to confront him. What are you doing talking to this man the way you are? I mean, he had to be shocked. And this guy on the other side had just been participating with him, not only in the abuse of Christ, but in all the same crimes, and all the same robberies, in all the same abuse of people. Uh, He had been running in the same sort of club and the same sort of dissipation. No no telling how uh, far these guys went back, but, but now suddenly, it's like he's a different person. In a moment, he went from being a part of all of this foolish and wicked behavior to now asking his friend, how can you act like that? How can you talk like that? Do you not fear God? Don't you understand you're suffering what you deserve? Don't you know that this man hanging next to us is righteous? Must have been a shock. For the one criminal to hear the other do such an about face. This must have been a shock to the one who is still sort of participating in all that sinful speech and behavior. I'm sure it's possible he stopped and asked himself internally, if not out loud, what happened to you? What happened to you? Well, Luke lets us know what happened. He really gives us some clear indicators of the kind of transformation that took place in this guy's heart. And, 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 and we can identify, I think, three basic realities, three features of a very simple faith that was born in his heart. In fact, they're the three features that are necessary for every person's faith. If you have any desire to go to heaven... Three simple features of his saving faith that we can identify beginning in verse 39 and 40 with a fear of God. This is the first evidence of God's working in his heart. He had a fear of God. It's really one of the first elements that you see in every genuine believer's heart, a heightened awareness that God is a threat, that God is somebody to be feared, this is really the beginning of salvation. Uh, Proverbs tells us it's the beginning of knowledge. The beginning of all wisdom is the fear of the Lord. This is where this guy was. He suddenly was struck with a fear 
of God. He wasn't up there complaining about his circumstances and what he was going through. He wasn't looking for anyone to get him down from the cross. He wasn't trying to find anyone who could save him from his physical death. He was focused on one thing, and that is the divine judgment, which he now understood he faced. In other words, he suddenly realized his primary problems are not what's happening to him now here on earth. His primary problem is what's going to happen to him when he faces God. He came to realize what Jesus had taught his disciples earlier, that you're not to be afraid of those who kill the body and have no more that they can do to you. But Jesus says, I warn you whom you should fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, fear him, I tell you. This other thief who's still there hurling abuse at Jesus, he doesn't have any of that fear. He doesn't seem to have any kind of sense that he's about to face the judgment of God or he has any kind of threat that's uh, looming for him. He's like all other sinners. He doesn't have any sense of the fear of God in his eyes. This is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 is true of all people who are born in this world. He tells us from Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, no one, uh, no, no, not one. There's none who understands, none who does good. And he goes on and gives us a whole litany of characteristics of people who do not believe. And then he ends the entire list by saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's where this one guy is. He's even about to die, and he doesn't stop to contemplate all the sinful things that are coming across his lips or even the things that he's done. And so his friend, who has now had this moment of clarity, looks across to him, and he says to him, Do you have no fear of God? That you can continue to act the way that you act and do the things that you do and say the things that you say. Do you not fear God? Sad reality is that it wasn't just the other criminal. All the people were participating in this. All the... All the rulers and the priests and the Jewish leadership, not to mention the soldiers and the crowds, they were all mocking him. And what makes it even more sad is that they were preparing themselves to celebrate the high and holy day of Passover. They were on the eve of their most sort of religious uh, ceremony of the entire year. You... uh you remember what Passover was, right? Many people think of Passover as that ceremony looking back on when God rescued the Jewish people from Pharaoh. But that's not really Passover. That's not what Passover is about. Passover is not about being rescued from Pharaoh. Passover was about being rescued from God. It was God who sent his death angel across the land of Egypt. And only those people who had put the blood of a lamb marking their doorpost were the ones who were spared by God. Otherwise, God himself 
would invade their household and take their firstborn, whether Jews or Egyptians. He would claim the life of their firstborn. This was a deliverance, not from Pharaoh. It was a deliverance from God. Jews had lost sight of that, though. They were focused on their escape from captivity, their escape from Pharaoh. And so the ceremony, the Passover, had been sort of... uh, twisted or distorted and forgotten really in its original terms. They were just going through all the religious motions, had all the religious rituals and had all the religious words. Sure, they sang songs and did all these things, but they did all of that stuff, all that religious stuff with no true fear of God. Just like you. If you come and you participate in a worship service like this, you sing the songs, you go through all the outward motions, and yet you leave here and you go out and you live however you want to live. You say uh, whatever you want to say. You behave however you want to face. There's no fear of God in your life. Even this criminal, he had been raised, I'm sure, as a Jew. He had been brought up in the synagogue. He had been taught in the Torah he had been given all the laws of God his entire life, and yet it didn't really make any impact on him. He was out living however he wanted to live. He was brutal. He was selfish. He was attacking people, taking whatever he wanted to, to take. He had lived his life for himself and for whatever indulgences and pleasures he could see for himself until at this moment, suddenly, his mind is overwhelmed with a flood of clarity. And in a moment, he understands everything that he's never understood before. Everything makes sense. He's suddenly aware that his biggest issues are not the issues he faces in this life. His biggest issue is the one he's going to face when he dies. He's like the prodigal son, you remember, who had gone out and gone his own way and uh, rebelled against not only his father, but rebelled against God and done everything that he'd been told not to do until he eventually found himself uh, years later slopping uh, food for pigs and so emptied in his own belly, he wanted to eat the slop itself. And at that moment, the scripture tells us he came to his senses. Well, this guy had the same kind of experience. He came to his senses. He, he had never reached this point of clarity before until he reached, if you will, the bottom. This moment, in the midst of all of his agony, in the midst of all of the sort of consequences of everything that he's done that are now sort of it's just sort of enveloping him. And his mind is absolutely overcome With this sense of clear thinking, he now cannot imagine all the things that he's done. He can't imagine anyone not only doing what he did, but saying the things that he said and behaving in the ways that he behaved so that he can now turn to the very guy that he had done all these things with and said all these things with, He he can now turn to that very guy and he can say, do you not even fear God? Since we're under the same sentence of condemnation. I know I've told you this story before, but it makes me think of the time when I was a young man. 
on the streets in Pensacola, Florida, out uh, running and hopping from bar to bar until uh, we were walking on the street and we encountered these three preachers who were trying to warn us about the judgment of God and call us to repentance. And my friends, my, my, my football buddies, I, they just, just went over the top, ridiculing, laughing, mocking, screaming at these guys, and I participated. I remember, though, we got into our, our car after that, and we began to drive off. I was sitting in the back, and everyone was still just sort of yucking it up and everything, and I just felt an overwhelming sense of shame for what I had just been involved with. This guy, he was overwhelmed. But with all that came this clarity, this evidence of the work of God. And he begins to talk about his guilt. Verse 41, We indeed are suffering justly, for we're receiving what we deserve for our This this is what I deserve. I am a lawbreaker. I have violated not only the laws of man, but I violated the laws of God. He became utterly aware of his sinfulness, his guilt. I'm a sinner, and I know I'm a sinner. He understands justice, he understands what he deserves. He's like the publican that Jesus talked about back in Luke 18 who stood at the back of the synagogue, wouldn't even dare to enter in any closer because he knew he didn't even deserve to be there. He just sat at the back and beat his chest and kept saying over and over and over, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This is a true convert. He doesn't excuse. He doesn't hide his guilt He doesn't pretend like it's not there. He doesn't cover it up so that people can't see it. He has nothing but to confess his other guilt and his bankruptcy. He knows that he has nothing on which he can depend or claim. He's just a man in need of mercy. That takes us to a second feature of his simple faith here. Not only does he realize the fear of the Lord, but he also has a worship of Christ. This is what happens when someone truly, truly comes to believe. They not only suddenly are struck by a deep sense of fear for everything they've been doing, but they suddenly realize who Christ is. And that's what this guy, that's what happens with him there at the end of verse 41. He says, we're getting what we deserve, but this man, he has done nothing wrong. So, so he understands that this, this man that's crucified next to him had no guilt, had no, uh, no, nothing to, to sort of confess or no reason why he not only should have been crucified, certainly didn't have any reason why he should be mocked or ridiculed. This is the essence of worship. Now, now, when I say that, I'm not talking about all the sort of ceremonies and all the songs and all the stuff that might go into some sort of formal service of people. What I'm talking about when I say worth, worship is the, the, the true meaning of the word, which is to ascribe worth, 
to ascribe admonition and adoration for someone. He is ascribing worth to Jesus Christ. This man is worthy of our respect. This man is worthy of our adoration. I don't know how he knew much about this guy. I don't know if he had heard about his ministry or had watched any of his teaching or even seen any of his healings. Or if he had just heard about it from other people, Jesus had been performing miracles and teaching for three years. Maybe he just had heard. Possibly he even knew a little bit of the reputation that people had tried to catch Jesus in different faults or even lay charges against him. And none of them, none of them ever stood because he was so holy. But at this moment, he... He realized that this man who was nailed to this cross, he didn't deserve it. It was a profound realization, I'm sure. A deep realization that there can be all kinds of people around you who have no respect and really have no true faith and really don't have any sort of honor or worship of Christ, but none of that really reflects on who this man really is. The thing that you have to look at is his life, the truth of his life, and there's nothing in his life that would have called for what he has experienced, the way he has been treated or the way people have even talked about him and certainly wouldn't account for the way people respond to him. He's absolutely overwhelmed with the reality. And he does what every sinner ultimately has to do. He's comparing his life with all of its shame and all of its guilt. He's comparing his life with the perfection of Christ. And he knows that he is filled with all kinds of shameful deeds, but he knows that Christ is absolutely perfect. He's perfect in His ways. He's perfect in His words. He's perfect in His wisdom. He's perfect in His righteousness. This man has done nothing wrong. And so his whole perspective changes. Clarity comes. He sees himself more clearly than he's ever seen himself. And he sees Jesus more clearly for the first time ever. He sees who Jesus is. Not only that, he even says to him, Jesus, in verse 42, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's even a remarkable statement because no one survives crucifixion. This guy, he clearly understood something. He clearly understood that Jesus may die within the next few hours, but that's not going to be the end. He clearly understands that Jesus is going to sort of uh, uh, survive in some way, that He's going to triumph over this moment in some way. He's convinced of that. And so He asked Jesus when Jesus comes into His kingdom to remember Him. In other words, He understands this guy's not only perfect, that He understands this is God's promised 
Messiah. The one who had been prophesied all these years. The one who was going to come and establish His kingdom. And the one who would raise the, the dead from the grave and give them new bodies in the resurrection. The Jews believed in the resurrection. They understood that in the end that God will raise up every man and woman and He will raise up those who are unbelievers, the wicked, He will raise them up in their, in their bodies to suffer eternal punishment, Daniel 12 says, and then He'll raise up those who are believers, the righteous, for eternal life. And He's looking ahead to that day. And He's anticipating that. And He asks Jesus that perhaps in the last day, once you have died and risen from the grave, when you raise up your other followers, when that day comes, if you could possibly remember me. I want to be with the saints. I want to be with your righteous ones. I know I'm not worthy. I know that I'm here because of what I've done. I know I deserve to be rejected by men and by you. I know all that's true, but if you would, remember me. He's asking for forgiveness. He wants to be there when the kingdom comes. What in the world would have given him the idea that this man that he had been ridiculing for the last few hours is somehow going to be willing to turn around and allow him into the kingdom. What would have given him that idea? Because somewhere along the way, while he was hurling his abuse and his buddy over there was hurling his abuse, somewhere along the way, he picked up these words coming from the cross next to them. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. It had to strike him that this man hanging on the cross could have the kind of compassion and mercy against all these people abusing him and all these people ridiculing him. And he could pray for their forgiveness. That gave him hope. If he's willing to forgive those people, maybe he'll forgive me. Maybe he'll forgive me, which is really the third element of his simple faith, just a hope of forgiveness. I mean, he knows that Jesus is righteous. He knows that he's not righteous. But he also recognizes the mercy, the mercy that he's willing to show. And all of this truth is now bursting in his mind with crystal clarity. He's never seen it before. He's never seen himself the way he sees himself. He's never seen Jesus the way he sees Jesus. And he's never understood this grace the way he understands this grace. And so he just simply asks Jesus if you could remember me. This is the plea of a penitent and broken and unworthy sinner with the simplest of prayers. Save me, God. Just save me. Jesus says to him in verse 43, Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. He has to say this word, truly. I want to assure you. That's, that's basically what that word means. I want to assure you 
that today you'll be with me in paradise. I mean, he has to say that because, I mean, it's almost unbelievable. It's almost unbelievable that, that not only would he remember him in his kingdom, but this very day, in just a, just a matter of, uh, of moments, maybe hours, after all of his sin and shame and then all the agony and everything that he's suffering, it's almost unbelievable that immediately he would just accept him into paradise. There's no sense or idea that he has to sort of wait in some purgatory. He has to go and, and atone for his deeds in some way by suffering in some holding place, some temporary uh, location where, where, where he's not really knowing the full joys and satisfactions of God's presence. None of that is true. He's going to be with Jesus in paradisos. The word basically means a garden. It's a Persian word for garden, but it has the idea of serenity and lack of stress and suffering. And that idea was carried over to equate with the notion of, of heaven. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he talks about being taken up into heaven. He then turns around and says, I was taken into paradise. Me sort of helping us understand that paradise and heaven Essentially the same place. He's, he's telling this guy, you're going to be with me. Despite everything that you've done, I'm not going to hold it against you. You don't have to sort of slunk in shame. You don't have to fear the afterlife. You don't have to fear the judgment. You don't have to fear any of that stuff. Indeed, you are qualified for hell. You well know that you are under the wrath of God. But I want to assure you, you're going to be with me in paradise today. So much kindness. So much comfort from a man that I'm sure was overwhelmed by his sin. He was plagued as this clarity came to his mind with the whole reality of what his life had been. It had been a lie. It had been some sort of massive abuse of other people. It had been taking advantage of others. It had been pursuing his own indulgences. It had been absent of God in almost every way. His whole life had been lived in the kind of emptiness of his sin, running sort of the rat race from one indulgence to the other, leaving him as empty as, as, as the previous experiences. He had been through all this stuff, and he knew He deserved nothing, and he hears those precious words. You'll be with me in paradise. That's all he needed. That's all he needed. He didn't need need an extra day. He didn't need an extra year. He didn't need to somehow be spared that moment so that he could go out and prove himself, so that he could go and do all these religious deeds. Somehow go and show everybody that he's a brand... He didn't need any of that stuff. He didn't need to prove anybody that he's a brand new person. All he needed was the words of Christ. You'll be with me in paradise. And now everything made sense. His whole life made sense. All of his anger and all of his anxiety and all of the sort of animosity he felt towards other people and took out on other people, all the words, the abusive words that had filled his lips, all of the sort of rebellion against men and against God, all of it made sense. He now knew he was a sinner 
And now he knew that God was righteous, and yet God was gracious and willing to forgive. That's all it took for him to be able to enter into heaven. That's all it takes for you, for anyone really. Doesn't matter how complex your issues are. Doesn't matter how deep they've gone. Doesn't matter how long they've gone on. Doesn't really matter how much you have masked them or hidden them from other people. Doesn't really matter. If you are willing to open your heart to the fear of God and the truth of Christ and the hope of forgiveness, and you cry out to God and ask for that, He gives you the same promise. You will be with Him in heaven. Lord, this is uh, the appropriate way for us to remember this weekend, the weekend of Your crucifixion and Your resurrection. To remember that You're a gracious God, full of mercy and compassion. I pray for those who are here today who have been living their life without the fear of God. They've been going from one empty experience to the next. They've been overcomplicating, thinking that the solutions to their life always lie over the horizon, always looking for some next experience. Would you give them clarity this morning? The clarity to see their sin the clarity to understand the holiness of Christ and the clarity to seek His forgiveness. What a way to celebrate Easter, to have a new life, a new purpose, and to find that you can work in any sinner's life. We thank you and praise you for those things. In Christ's name, amen.